Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 50. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on December 2nd, 2021, in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm up here in pursuit of the legal tender, and I've had a lot of work today and a long business dinner tonight. It's after 10 o'clock Boston time, so we'll see how this goes. As is often the case, music for the writing of this episode was provided by WWOZ New Orleans, the Guardians of the Groove. Before we jump into the history bit, a few reminders and announcements. I would be remiss if I failed to suggest that our t-shirts and sweatshirts make great Christmas or Hanukkah gifts for the history buffs in your circles. There is the classic presentism prohibited design, and now a new totally different shirt that you should at least check out. You can buy them by going to the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, clicking on the About tab at the top of the page, and then going to the button that says Merch. Rest assured, all profits, paltry as they are, go to one or another good cause, including keeping my daughter in Whataburgers while she finishes up her degree. I also want to mention again, and we'll probably do for the next few weeks, that I will be in New Orleans January 6th to 9th for the annual meeting of the American Historical Association. If you are going to be in the Crescent City during that stretch, whether or not you are attending the meeting, shoot me an email if you want to get together. I'd love to meet you and shoot the breeze over coffee, libations, or a cigar. Let me know via the contact page on the website or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning, without presentism. I'm going to skip over the rest of the usual cant this time because my brother says that it is a bit tedious and he would prefer to hear it only occasionally. He's usually right about these things, though, so I'll roll it out maybe once a month going forward, unless, of course, the rest of you rise up in high dudgeon and demand it every time. This episode is The Mystery of Novo Albion and Drake's Legacy. The main prerequisite is episode 37, Sir Francis Drake, Around the World in 118 Days, Part 3, which dropped all the way back on September 9, 2021 but would help to listen to all three of the Around the World episodes. In part three, we talked about the Golden Hind long voyage home from the west coast of Central America, largely skipping over the exploration of the Pacific coast of the United States and possibly British Columbia in the summer of 1579. Here's what we said back then with but a minor tweak. At this point, Drake knew that the Spanish were hunting for him and that neither crossing the Isthmus nor the Strait of Magellan were safe routes home. That left two options. Sailing west around the world, the route he would eventually take, or over the top of North America, the so-called Northwest Passage, if he could find the hypothetical western end of it. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that the English term for the western end of the Northwest Passage, which does not actually exist, 
was the Strait of Anian, and John Dee, and possibly the Queen herself, had charged Drake with finding it. In possession of Spanish charts and rudders, Drake now knew that the summer winds blow south by southeast down the west coast of North America. That meant that the Golden Hind and Tellos Bark, still along at this point, would beat against those winds if they were to sail directly up the coast from Mexico. That would not only be exhausting and take a lot of time, but it would deplete their ships physically. The two ships already needed careening. That was the arduous process by which a wooden sailing ship was unloaded, beached, scraped of barnacles and other growth on the hull, repaired and caulked with pitch. And a long tack against the winds would put the ships in jeopardy if they could not find a suitable and safe bay to spend the month or more necessary to complete the process. So Drake headed out into the Pacific, proceeding west by northwest more than 2,000 miles until roughly the latitude of Los Angeles, and then describing a wide loop to the northeast, arriving somewhere in the Pacific Northwest at perhaps 48 degrees north by late May. 48 degrees north is roughly where the southern tip of Vancouver Island looks across to the northwest corner of Washington State. The Golden Hind and Telos Bark spent two or three weeks exploring the coast of the Pacific Northwest, looking for the western entrance to the Strait of Anian and a suitable harbor with a beach to careen the ships. They found a fair and good bay on June 17, 1579, and spent five or more weeks there. The English explored the area and developed apparently good relationships with the local Indians, who had never before encountered Europeans or blacks of African descent. Eventually, Drake would claim the territory for England and Elizabeth I, name it Novo Albion, and legitimize the claim through ceremonies with the Indians and the placement of a metal plate engraved at least with Drake's name, the date, and an image of Elizabeth. This became known to history as Drake's Plate of Brass. The location of the fair and good bay is of immense controversy and has been for well over a hundred years. For a long time, many historians believed it to be in California, either at Drake's Bay, which is on the Pacific coast north of San Francisco, or somewhere in San Francisco Bay. By the early 1900s, however, newly discovered documents suggested that Drake had been much farther north than argued by those who believed he landed in California. Today, cogent alternative arguments have been made for Vancouver Island, Washington State, and the coast of Oregon in addition to California. The argument around this is arcane, and it involves such unscrupulous and scurrilous behavior by otherwise respected historians that it is worth an episode of its own. This, my loyal listeners, is that episode. For this episode, I've heavily relied on Thunder Go North, the hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, published only in 2019 by Melissa Darby of the Department of Anthropology at Portland State University. I recommend it if you, like me, can't stop reading about Drake. We'll put a link in the show notes. Longstanding and attentive listeners will remember that Francis Drake, still not yet a knight, 
and the Golden Hind returned to Plymouth on September 26, 1580, a thousand and eighteen days after having departed. Drake hailed a fisherman, asking if the queen were still alive. With a hold full of Spanish treasure and a logbook detailing the secrets of the world for the English, Drake would have been in a lot of trouble if a Catholic ally of Spain now sat on the throne. Much to Drake's relief, the fisherman replied that Elizabeth was still queen. The very lethal influenza pandemic of 1580 was raging in Plymouth, however, so Drake's men, exhausted as they must have been of life on the ship, stayed on board the Golden Hind for the time being. Drake sent messages to his allies in Whitehall, and the Privy Council sprang into action. The Queen and her counselors put out the story that Drake was in the Queen's bad graces because he had stolen from the Spanish. But that was, in Melissa Darby's words, a ruse de guerre, or, for you English speakers, a cover story. Darby's description of the return sets the stage, quote, Francis Drake was a hero. He had met the unprepared Spaniards with such zeal and pertinacity that Drake's name, El Drake, or El Draco the Dragon, became terrible to them. Within a week of Drake's return to England, Queen Elizabeth quietly summoned him to court and told him to, quote, take her some samples of his labors and that he was to fear nothing. In his audience with Her Majesty at Whitehall Palace, Drake presented her with his illustrated journal and a very large gilded map marked with a gold line that traced the path of the Golden Hind around the world. One of the samples he presented her was a coconut from the South Sea. The Queen made it into a cup mounted in silver gilt and gave it back to Drake as a New Year's gift. Drake's journal contained his navigation records, detailed drawings of coastlines, sketch maps of islands, illustrations of particular episodes from the voyage, and natural history drawings of botanical and faunal specimens. Drake spent more than six hours in the Queen's audience going over the details of the voyage. Queen Elizabeth kept Drake's map, journal, and records under her own lock and key, and from that day on, a cloak of secrecy was thrown over the voyage. Though there was no official public recognition of the circumnavigation, five months after he returned, Queen Elizabeth rewarded Drake with a knighthood on the deck of the Golden Hind, and the ship was made into a monument. News of the voyage was suppressed, but ballads about the voyage were sung in the West Country of England, and students tacked poems to the main mast of the Golden Hind where she was birthed. Close quote. And it should be said, the crew was sworn to secrecy, not to reveal where they had traveled, except under pain of death. Elizabeth enforced her information blackout for years after Drake's return. She ordered the suppression of the publication of accounts of the voyage, altered maps, and prevented any discussion of Drake's voyage along the Pacific coast of the United States and perhaps Canada. In particular, reports of the northernmost latitude of the Golden Hind were altered. Although the twists and turns are complex, there is evidence that when the English did let information out, it was disinformation. Rather than reaching 48 degrees north or even farther, they shaved off approximately 6 degrees, 
Since each degree of latitude is roughly 69 miles, this shifted Drake's location, whatever it was, by more than 400 miles to the south. This would have put the location of Drake's Fair and Good Bay in California, a claim that would become almost holy writ to Golden State historians by the late 19th century. Of course, all of this might have been resolved with the revelation of Drake's gilded map and illustrated journal of the voyage, but they were apparently lost in a fire that burned Whitehall Palace in the late 1690s. By that time, some summaries had been made and published, but the destruction of Drake's originals is one of history's great documentary losses, at least if you are a Drake fanboy, as I am. Now, those of you who have listened to all our episodes on Drake may remember that he was, in fact, sailing with the private blessings of Elizabeth. He had discussed a plan for the voyage with Walsingham and then the Queen, and had even prepared a document describing it, which he was smart enough not to sign, explaining, if it should please God to take her majesty away. It might be that some prince might reign that might be in league with the king of Spain, and then will my own hand be a witness against myself. Elizabeth nevertheless approved the plan and ordered such secrecy around it that she forbid anybody to tell even William Cecil, her closest advisor, and leading Privy Council Dove. As I said back then, I doubt very much that Elizabeth was worried that Cecil was a spy or that he was otherwise not loyal. Far more likely, she just didn't want to deal with his whinging when she was all revved up to annoy Philip. That plan not only included the raiding of the Pacific coast of South America, but the search for the fabled Strait of Onion the supposed western entrance to the Northwest Passage between the North Atlantic and the Northern Pacific. But nobody knew any of that as recently as the early 20th century, by which time the legend of the Golden Hinds landing in California had become, in Darby's words, integral to California's historical identity, not unlike the story of the Alamo to patriotic Texans. If you remember the culture war controversy in the spring of 2021 over the new book, Forget the Alamo, you can get a sense of the importance of Drake's Novo Albion to Californians a hundred years ago. These matters of local history, however inconsequential in the sweep of things, become incredibly passionate. The authors of Forget the Alamo, for example, said that Davy Crockett did not fight to the death but probably surrendered and was executed by Santa Anna. Fighting words. Well, it was equally important to the California legend that Drake be a pirate. This made California boosters, including some famous California historians, highly resistant to new discoveries in the first half of the 20th century that all but proved that Drake was on a mission for Elizabeth and probably traveled much farther north than 42 degrees, the preferred northern boundary and, coincidentally, the border of California and Oregon. This episode is about weaponizing history and the dirty tricks played by California historians in the service of keeping Drake's fair and good bay in the Golden State, rather than Oregon, Washington, or Vancouver. The story starts with a woman named Zelia Nuttall, a brilliant scholar and one of the first female anthropologists. 
Delia Nuttall was born in San Francisco in 1857 to a prominent family. Her father was a physician who had been in California since the gold rush, and her maternal grandmother was a native of Mexico City. The Nuttall spoke Spanish as well as English at home, and in 1864, when Zelia was just seven and the Civil War was still raging, the family moved to Europe. Zelia attended schools in France and Germany, apparently because her father thought it important for her to learn those languages, and then attended a finishing school in London under the administration of a leading suffragette. Our daughter's daughter's Okay, okay, that may be the least relevant soundbite I've ever cut in, but one does what one has to do. In any case, Nuttall and her now five languages went on to work at Harvard in the Peabody Museum there under the tutelage of two early anthropologists, Frederick Putnam and Alice Fletcher. Nuttall and Fletcher in particular became lifelong friends and would collaborate on research in Mexico. Nuttall's scholarly achievements piled up rapidly. She published land-breaking works on New World languages and cultures and became friends with Phoebe Apperson Hurst, William Randolph Hurst's mother, who was a philanthropist, feminist, and suffragist. Now, in Hurst's social circles, Nuttall came to the attention of all sorts of important people in academia. And on an expedition to Russia was a guest at the coronation festivities of Tsar Nicholas II. She was just about as heavy a hitter as it was possible for a woman to be in academia at the turn of the 20th century. One day in February 1908, Nuttall was knocking around the National Archives in Mexico City, looking for documents that might shed light on the trials of Indians back in the days of the Spanish Inquisition. There in a dark and dusty corner, Nuttall found an old folio. She carried it into the light and saw the title, translated by her into Declaration by Nuna de Silva as to how he was taken prisoner by English pirates May 23, 1579. Nuttall, having been a fan of Drake since childhood, as we've said, she had a hell of a childhood, immediately recognized its significance, as well those of you who remember our three episodes on Drake's voyage around the world. The Silva was the Portuguese pilot that Drake took on board in the Mid-Atlantic on his way to the eastern entrance to the Strait of Magellan, and he had served with Drake until he was put ashore on the west coast of Central America just before Drake swung out in the Pacific in the big loop that would land the Golden Hind and the captured bark somewhere on the Pacific coast of today's United States. The Spanish had taken in De Silva, and in accordance with its usual practice, the Inquisition had interrogated him, or at the very least, taken a statement. Nuttall's discovery of a forgotten account of part of Drake's famous voyage diverted her into a multi-year search for more evidence. Darby summarizes her findings, quote, Over the next two years, Nuttall tracked down leads and traveled to archives in New York, London, Paris, Spain, Italy, and the Vatican. She found documents related to the cargo of Nuna de Silva's ship, Spanish documents relating to 
Nuno da Silva after his release from the Inquisition. And the first official reports concerning Drake's voyage received by King Philip II. There were legal briefs on the case and proceedings against Sir Francis Drake for his depredations in New Spain. She found official reports to the Viceroy and King Philip of Spain relating to Drake's actions at Gualtaco, and eight letters, including one from the mayor describing Drake's Gualtaco raid in detail. In Seville, Nuttle was astonished to find Nuno de Silva's logbook, uncatalogued and found only by chance in a bundle of papers within a file of documents relating to the Strait of Magellan. This was perhaps her most important find. This log is the only extant log of any part of the voyage, and one of only a handful of artifacts from April 1579, when Drake released Silva just before sailing to the northwest coast. Nuttle was struck with the importance of this find, but she was frustrated that the logbook proved extremely difficult to translate and edit. An accomplished Portuguese paleographer helped with the translation, and at long last, Nuttle was able to compare Nuno de Silva's account of the journey with the English accounts, verifying nearly every statement in the log. Nuttall's other important discoveries included the papers that the Viceroy of New Spain had methodically collected. These were depositions from nearly everyone Drake encountered that described each action, what Drake's ship was like, his armaments, his crew, and many details that flesh out Drake's encounters in New Spain. Back to me. In 1914, Nuttall published the most important book on Francis Drake since the 17th century, New Light on Drake, a collection of documents relating to his voyage of circumnavigation 1577-1580. Nuttall's dogged archival work and New Light account for a huge amount of what we know about Drake today, and is in the background of the five books on Drake that I read for the many episodes of this podcast that have featured him. Nuttall's publisher was the Hacklet Society, which existed and exists to publish original documents and translations from the Age of Exploration, but it does not allow authors to do much interpretation. Nuttall's observations were slipped into the introduction without real historical depth. She therefore started to write papers and do supporting research to develop her thesis. Nuttall's groundbreaking observations, which she developed in the papers that followed New Light, included at least two that threatened the cherished California origin story. The first was that Drake was not a pirate, at least not during the circumnavigation. It is from Nuttall that history now understands that Drake was on a secret mission for Elizabeth I. The second was that Drake had made it much farther north than 42 degrees, perhaps as far as 50 degrees, the latitude of northern Vancouver Island, which would have profound implications for California's claim that it was the home of the Fair and Good Bay and therefore Novo Albion. Even as British scholars applauded Nuttall's work, important California historians criticized it and then mobilized to discredit it. The narrative of Drake's landing in the area of San Francisco was, as we said, important to the national origin, as it were, of California. In the early years of the 20th century, a fraternal organization called the Native Sons of the Golden West emerged with a mission of extolling a certain version of California's history. 
There were chapters all over the state, and the story of Drake the pirate landing at Novo Albion was a central tenet of their fraternal mission. Darby says the native sons of the Golden West advanced a Californian style of white supremacy, and I have no reason to doubt that she is correct. However, even if they were merely zealous California patriots, they had motive enough to go after Nuttall. Darby methodically traces the connections between leading Californians who belong to the native sons and pillars of the California academic community in the early years of the 20th century. Simplifying a bit, the key players were native son James Rolfe, a San Francisco businessman, brothel owner, and mayor, and two professors of history at the University of California at Berkeley, Henry Morse Stevens and Herbert Eugene Bolton. Stevens was the newly elected president of the American Historical Association, the very same outfit that is having its annual meeting in New Orleans in early January. And Bolton was a very influential historian of the American West, recruited to Berkeley from Texas via Stanford. James Rolfe, who would go on to be governor of California, had an almost Trumpian flair for the promotional. In 1913, he set about organizing a huge exposition in San Francisco, fundamentally a fair for the Western Hemisphere, the Panama Pacific Expedition of 1915, which would in principle celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and San Francisco's position as the most important port on the West Coast. The native sons, including Rolf, were keen on tying in Great Britain to validate Drake, and Rolf dispatched an emissary to London to do precisely that. He secured a note from the First Lord of the Admiralty, a fellow named Winston Churchill, to wit. It is especially gratifying to me as chairman of the committee, which is promoting a national memorial to Drake in this country, to find that his memory is kept alive in those regions of the New World where his exploits were performed. And I am glad that you have given me an opportunity to send you all my good wishes for the success of the celebration. Rolf was, suffice it to say, pleased as punch, even if this was 26 years before Churchill would become Churchill. So when Nuttall's immensely valuable book landed in 1914, it was, so to speak, the turd in the native sun punch ball. As part of Rolf's extended festivities, his friends Stevens and Bolton organized a conference of historians at Berkeley and in San Francisco, the Panama Pacific Historical Congress of the American Historical Association, from July 19th to July 23rd, 1915. Apart from the usual academic motives, the purpose of the Congress was to showcase the History Department at Berkeley and the Bancroft Library, which had been established there and remains one of the most important manuscript libraries in the United States. All of this having the hallmarks of a serious academic conference, Nuttall, who was delighted to return to the city of her childhood, was to give a paper that elaborated on her discoveries from New Light, titled The Northern Limits of Drake in the Pacific. 
Nettle's many academic accomplishments were such that Berkeley's Department of Anthropology received her graciously, and her social connections were such that she had the attention of the San Francisco press. After a complex maneuvering in which Stephen sent Nuttall's invitation to the wrong place accidentally, you can't see my air quotes, Nuttall did in fact give her paper, complete with maps and charts and the early 20th century equivalent of 27 8 by 10 glossy pictures with circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one. Drake had made it 50 degrees north, two-thirds of the way up Vancouver Island, and there was no freaking way the fair and good bay was in California. This made some news, but it did not stop the California boosters who gave talks at the same conference from ignoring not only Nuttall's paper, but the huge trove of discovered documents published in New Light on Drake. The titans of the California history professoriate thought they could get away with ignoring her, but it took more work than that. The Mandarins had to undermine Nuttall. Nuttall spent the next couple of years searching for an academic publisher of her paper on Drake. Stevens and Bolton, sitting at the top of their discipline, would obstruct her at every turn, which perfidiousness Darby sets forth in all its gory detail. Nuttall would repeatedly submit her paper to an academic journal, hear initial positive feedback, and then suddenly have it declined. By 1970, Nuttall would return to Mexico City and do other work. Her unpublished monograph on the northern limits of Drake's voyage is now lost. Nuttall died in 1933. Her grandson collected her papers and took them to London, but they were lost during the Second World War when a German bomb destroyed the building where he had stored them. The California juggernaut, as Darby put it, had won, and the revered story of Drake on the coast of California was safe, from Nuttall at least. Nuttall and her thesis had her academic supporters, and British historians continued to work on the documents that Nuttall had published in New Light and others. B.F. Benson and E.G.R. Taylor, another female scholar working almost 100 years ago, produced significant papers that advanced Nuttall's research. And as the 1920s and 30s passed, the walls were closing in on the native sons and their allies in academia. Drake was not a pirate, and the Golden Hind had sailed well north of the 42 degrees required to sustain the California story. Then one day in the summer of 1936, everything changed. Now I'll turn to Darby for her account, on which I cannot improve. Quote, On a drive in Marin County, California, a tire on Beryl Shin's car went flat, and he pulled over to the side of the road to fix it. It was a summer day in 1936, and he and his unnamed passenger, a young woman, decided to go for a hike. They climbed through a hole in a barbed wire fence and walked up the adjacent hill. On a small terrace, he found a small cairn of rocks stacked on one side of an outcrop. As the story goes, he began to playfully throw rocks from the stack down the hillside. And in so doing, he discovered a corner of metal sticking out of the base of the cairn. He pulled the metal out. Beryl Shin did not know it at the time, but he had found what would later be celebrated as Drake's plate of brass. He tossed the plate in his car, thinking 
he could use the metal later to repair his car frame and then forgot about it for a few months. Subsequently, one of Shin's friends, a student at Berkeley, examined the plate. The friend recognized the word Drake on the plate and advised Shin to show it to the famous Berkeley history professor and director of the Bancroft Library, Herbert Bolton. Shin called Bolton and met with him in his office the very next day to show him the plate. Bolton wrote of these events, quote, I surmised its identity even before seeing it from a very general description, which he gave me over the phone. My mind leaped to the conjecture at once because for years I have been telling my students to keep an eye out for Drake's plate and the silver sixpence bearing the image of Queen Elizabeth. The day after he met Shin, Bolton announced the great find to his students in his large history class. He heralded the plate with great enthusiasm in his lecture that day and roused his class into action, saying that they should all go over to the ocean immediately and look for more artifacts from Drake. Triumphantly, he led them out of the doors of the lecture hall like he was leading 76 trombones in a big parade. Close quote. The discovery of Drake's plate of brass would shock the world, or at least that small subculture of it that was searching for the true site of Novo Albion. Bolton would go on to prevent all but the most cursory examination of the plate by other scholars, especially those who might challenge the California landing. And when he eventually submitted it for metallurgical analysis, the supposedly definitive report was probably a put-up job, and in any case, far below the standard that prevailed even in the late 1930s. It would not be until 1977, after Bolton's death and the application of science, that the plate of brass would be revealed as a fraud. By that time, all the contrary scholarship that pointed toward a more northern landing had been all but forgotten. Now back to Darby, quote, It is almost certain that Bolton himself initiated the plate of brass hoax, and this enthusiastic show for his students was part of the ruse. Bolton was implicated in the scheme in 1977 by the testimony of the daughter of one of Bolton's accomplices. Her name was Dolores Baron Scoble, and her father had been the curator at Park Memorial Museum in Golden Gate Park. In her 1977 statement, she recounted the day her father went to a meeting with several men at the home of a historian who lived in Berkeley. Baron had brought along his wife and Dolores, who was 12 years old at the time. At some point, Dolores left the company of her mother and the others who were visiting in the house and went out to see what the men were doing in the garage. Dolores watched them and heard them laughing and discussing a metal plate. When Dolores recounted these events many years later, she provided the only first-hand eyewitness account of the plate and its perpetrators to James Hart, the investigator of the plate hoax. Among the revelations in her testimony was that the plate of brass was made in 1917 and that the plate hoax was initiated by the Berkeley historian who lived in the hills above the University of California. The events in the garage took place 20 years prior to the eventual launch of the hoax, but was at the critical moment when Zelia Nuttall's theory of Drake's landing was gaining traction. 
The plate was kept in hiding for years until another opportunity presented itself. In the 1930s, the Drake in California theory was again in jeopardy. It was then that the plate hoax was launched using a different set of accomplices. The plate was found by Shin in 1936 and was brought to the public's attention in 1937. Close quote. Melissa Darby's fine book amounts to a detailed posthumous indictment of Herbert Bolton, with far too much detail to relate even on this fairly detailed podcast. In short, her argument boils down to three points. First, Bolton actually had a history as a perpetrator of, or accomplice in, historical frauds, for which he would develop alibis that would protect his reputation in the event they were exposed. Back in his Texas days, Bolton had been at the center of at least three discoveries, air quotes again, of putatively old Spanish documents that purported to show the location of old Indian silver mines, buried treasure, and the like. Bolton would validate the documents, and investors would put up money to his secret partners to search for the supposed booty. In 1923 and again in 1926, Bolton put out the false story that Captain Kidd had allegedly buried a chest containing old Spanish gold and jewels in a cave somewhere in Maine. In all cases, he maintained plausible deniability, passing them off in each case as a hoax perpetrated on him, too, or a joke at the expense of greedy people. In some of these cases, he may have had a financial interest in the outcome, and in others, he may simply have enjoyed the spectacle of toying with people. Darby herself found links, albeit less clear, between Bolton and the famous Dare Stone, which was discovered a few months after the Drake Plate came to light. The Dare Stone was inscribed by a message allegedly carved by Eleanor Dare, the daughter of John White, leader of the 1587 lost colony of Roanoke, and mother of Virginia Dare. The Dare Stone was supposedly found by a man from California named Ellie Hammond, who said he found it along the banks of the Chowan River in North Carolina while vacationing there with his wife. Mr. Hammond brought the stone to an eminent historian at Emory University, Haywood Jefferson Pierce Jr., who seems to have fallen for it like a ton of bricks. Pierce bought the stone from Hammond and for four years promoted the Dare Stone as one of the great discoveries of the era, right up there with a Drake plate, until an investigative reporter with a Saturday Evening Post named Boyden Sparks started looking into it. Sparks dug in, interviewed Pierce, and smelled a rat, catching Pierce in several lies. Sparks was never able to prove beyond doubt that the Dare Stone was a fake, but his work prompted Emery to hire the Pinkertons to get to the bottom of it. They learned that there was no such person as L.E. Hammond. L.E. Hammond had said he had lived in the Oakland area, and that was where Emery had sent the purchase money to an address next door to Berkeley. In just the last few years, Melissa Darby found the possible connection to Bolton. He had a favorite student named George P. Hammond, who had worked under Bolton at the Bancroft Library and had been one of the recipients of the fellowships awarded by the Native Sons of the Golden West. 
No photographs of Ellie Hammond had been taken, but he had signed his name to various documents in connection with the sale of the Darestone. Darby arranged for four handwriting experts to compare the signatures on those documents with known samples of George Hammond's handwriting. Boom! Three of the four handwriting experts concluded that it was probable that Ellie Hammond's signature had been written by George Hammond. And the fourth found possible differences, but said that the similarity between the two is quite extraordinary. If George Hammond were the perpetrator of the Darestone hoax, he would have learned a lot about the historical fraud game from his mentor, Herbert E. Bolton. And it must be said, in 1946, Bolton arranged for George Hammond to be appointed to the prestigious position of director of the Bancroft Library at Berkeley, a position Hammond held for the next 19 years. Second, Darby traces Bolton's many efforts to frustrate the validation of the Drake plate by skeptical scholars. He bobbed and weaved for years, refusing or ignoring requests, even for clear photographs, much less close inspection or actual metallurgical analysis. Bolton did practically everything to block the possibility that the plate might be a modern contrivance. Finally, Darby picks her way through the manufacture of the plate itself and construction of Bolton's alibi in the event that the plate had been exposed. She shows how a small group, all with ties to Bolton or the native Sons of the Golden West, had in all likelihood engaged a local artisan engraver to make the plate. The cover story in the event of discovery would be that it had all been a plot of a group known as the Clampers, a fraternal society of enthusiasts of Western history and lore. The Clampers had been around for years and had a reputation for practical jokes, humorous writings with historical themes and pranks. Bolton was, in fact, the grand historian of the Clampers and would have been able to position himself as a victim of one of their practical jokes if the scheme had gone awry. As should now be obvious, however, Bolton's other behavior makes it clear that his intention was to make the Drake plate stick and confirm the location of Drake's Farringood Bay in California. The California theory still prevails among non-historians in California. And even today, two years after the publication of Darby's book, the Wikipedia entry for Drake's Plate of Brass, which I shall link in the show notes, pins it all on the clampers and suggests that Bolton was the victim of the hoax rather than the perpetrator. If any of you go read Darby's book, you can have some internet fun rewriting that entry. That is if I don't get to it first. There remains the question of the actual location of Drake's Bay in Novo Albion. Since the revelation in 1977 that the plate was a fake, interest in the question has revived. Darby makes the case that it was along the coast of Oregon. Samuel Balfe, whose book, The Secret Voyage of Sir Francis Drake, 1577 to 1580, I've cited in previous episodes, makes an interesting case for the vicinity of Vancouver. Both seem plausible to me, and since it is not terribly important to the sweep of history, I'm going to spare you the arcane arguments for either location. 
both Darby and Ball for worth your time. However, if you want to read more about that amazing voyage more than 400 years ago, we are at the end of our episodes that feature Sir Francis Drake, which at this point might be a relief to many of you. Long as this episode is, however, I do want to comment on Drake's legacy before we wrap up. As you have heard me argue more than once over the last few months, I believe that Drake's influence on the history of the Americans is far greater than most American or British historians have appreciated. Drake inspired the English Protestants when they desperately needed inspiration. Starting with his first really successful mission in 1573, Drake stole from the Spanish who were themselves thieves. A generation of English privateers went to sea against Spain because they saw what Drake had done and wanted to do the same. None would do it so well, but together they were a central part of Elizabeth's containment of and resistance to Spanish hegemony. It was also on that 1573 mission that the Cimarrone leader Pedro took Drake to his lookout high in the mountains of Panama, where he could see both oceans. And only four years later, he embarked on his astonishing voyage around the world. Drake and his imitators would so vex Philip II that he would launch an extremely risky invasion of England to depose Elizabeth and restore Catholic rule. Drake would do more than anybody else to defeat that invasion. With the destruction of the Spanish Armada in 1588, Elizabeth and Protestant England would never be threatened nearly so much again, and the eventual settlement of the Anglo-Spanish War would effectively open North America to English settlement. There is a very good chance that without Drake, Protestantism would have eventually been overthrown in England, and the ambitious men in Elizabeth's circle and in the West Country would not have been around to challenge Spanish claims in North America. Today, it is not surprisingly fashionable to disparage Drake. In his youth, he participated on the first English slaving missions under his cousin John Hawkins. For some people, that is all that is necessary to condemn him forever and always, regardless of mitigating evidence. Attentive listeners know that I worry that the highly respected historian Jill Lepore did just that, as I ventured toward the end of our episode on Drake's West Indies mission. In the summer of 2020, Mill Valley, California renamed Sir Francis Drake High School, not because Drake didn't visit California, but because of those slaving missions under Hawkins. Now, Unlike many people, I don't have a big problem renaming high schools for good reasons. We've often selected high school names to make a political point. No doubt, the naming of Sir Francis Drake High School was once the result of promoting Drake's landing in California. So I have no problem reversing that decision. But it does seem to me that in their renaming, we should take opportunities to learn and teach a bit more expansively. The debate over changing the school's name might, for example, have made mention that Drake is also a case of personal redemption. Serious historians, including particularly Miranda Kaufman in her book Black Tudors, have argued that Drake never again engaged in slaving after his alliance with the Cimarrones in 1573. 
by all accounts, he freed hundreds and perhaps thousands of black and Indian slaves of the Spanish. And when they came aboard his ships to serve, he paid them the same as he paid his English crewmen. That might not be enough to keep Drake's name on a high school, but it is a story worth remembering and teaching. Drake changed his 16th century mind and lived his life differently thereafter. It seems to me there is something useful in knowing that. Thank you again for listening. I'm going to take a week off, and we'll put up a new episode on December 16th or thereabouts. Then we will look at the Spanish expeditions in the American Southwest in the 1580s and 1590s, including the Añate Entrada that may or may not have celebrated the first Thanksgiving in the United States. After that, we will return to the east coast of today's United States and see what happened in Jamestown and on the coast of Maine in 1607. As always, I love hearing from you guys. Please direct your questions, comments, eruptions of outrage, and pats on the back to the history of the Americans at gmail.com or via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Until next time. <laughs>